Okay, so we are we all clear on induction? No. Okay, I do. First, first, I want a little bit of a change of pace. Not that it wasn't a little bit of a change of pace yesterday, but part of what we're talking about is whether you can um, change a pace that's already a changing pace, right? That would be acceleration. That would be different degrees of acceleration. Accelerated acceleration. No. All right. Yeah. You don't think so? No. Yeah. Is what? Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. <laughs> As they say, the best is missed unless pops around. Um, okay. So what I am passing around is a couple of pages from um, Samuel Beckett's novel Malloy. Um, how many people know who Beckett is? That's it. Okay, he used to pitch for the Red Sox, but no, sorry, wrong Beckett. He was um, Henry the Set. No, that's also the wrong Beckett. All right, waiting for Godot. Doesn't ring a bell. Is this is that one a joke or is that real? That's real. It's a real. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Lie down with jokes. Get up with people thinking you're a joker. Um, it's a real play. Okay. So have you heard of it? Yeah, wasn't it at Brandeis last year? Yeah. It, yeah. It was last fall, and then it was last spring's directing final project. We all did the first scene. All right, so if you don't know who Beckett is, this may fall somewhat flat, but it's okay, too. Um, so Samuel Beckett is one of the great Irish writers, actually, um, um, and great both as a playwright and as a novelist. He's probably um, greater as a novelist than a playwright, but he's um, better known as a playwright than as a novelist. His most famous play is a play called Waiting for Godot, and that's it kind of invented um, postmodern theater. If you have this sort of parody sense of what postmodern theater is like, in which um, basically people um, stand around and say things that make no sense, if you know who Harold Pinter is, yes, no, Harold Pinter, another Nobel Prize winner, um, The Dumb Waiter. Uh, betrayal, the movie Betrayal. Um, okay, you should read a lot of Pinter and Beckett. Um, Pinter was Pinter owed everything to Beckett, as Beckett knew <laughs> with some disgust. Um, but Pinter <coughs> revered Beckett. Okay, so um, the idea of um, contemporary drama where um, people look really intense or experimental drama. Um, let's say Greenwich Village drama in which people look really intense and you don't know what's going on. Um, it was Beckett who first did that, but he did it in a completely wonderful and great way. Um, Waiting for Godot is a play that seems to take place probably in something like the French Resistance. Um, and there are four characters in it. Vladimir and Estragon are the two main characters. And they come in and they're waiting. They're supposed to meet Godot. Um, the props of the play are a tree um, and their pants and their hats. Um, they have ropes around their belts and they wear bowler hats. And they wait and they talk and they wonder if Godot is going to come. There are five characters. There's the little boy as well. Yeah, the boy comes. That's right. There's Lucky Pozzo, um, the boy, Vladimir and Astragon. And also they have, they have shoes. And they have shoes. Yeah, no, no, they do have shoes. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so those of you who know, you know, and those of you who don't, I'm giving the, um, uh, the stripped-down version. Um, so they wait for Godot, 
he doesn't come by the end of Act One. Um, they do not move as the last stage direction um, at the end of Act One. Uh, one says to the other, shall we go? Yes, let's go. Then they do not move and then blackout. Um, act Two begins, they come on stage again, same tree. Um, Astrogon, I think, tries to hang himself with the rope belt that is holding his pants up. They both try to hang themselves? Yeah, like, well, they both talk about it. Okay. Well, one, I think it's Estragon's pants fall down when he tries to hang himself. So it's a slapstick moment of attempted, grim attempted suicide. Um, in comes um, Pozzo leading Lucky on a leash. Um, Lucky seems not able to talk, but then when he does talk, he talks scholastic philosophy for a little while, and then it turns into quacking. Um, a boy comes again to say that Godot won't be able to make it. Um, and then again... The last two lines are, shall we go? Yes, let's go. They do not move. Um, so what is this play? Many people thought it was hilarious. Zero Mistel was in the Broadway opening of it. Do you know who Zero Mistel is? Fiddler on the Roof? Zero the Greek? Okay, good. Um, the funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Um, so who is Godot? Is he God um, turned into a kind of diminutive, G-O-D, OT. Um, in Irish, he might be called Gado. Um, is he um, nothingness? Is he some version of Charlie Chaplin, whose nickname? Do you all know who Charlie Chaplin is? <laughs> okay, good. Who's, do you know who Buster Keaton is? Um, Buster Keaton is the second greatest silent film actor-director after Charlie Chaplin. His rival, nearly as good, and in fact, Beckett made a movie with him in the 1960s when Keaton was very old. Um, Chaplin's nickname at the time was Charlot, um, the lovable tramp Charlot, C-H-A-R-L-O-T. That was his nickname in France, so there seems to be some relation there. Yeah, Joy. Also, um, the, uh, Beckett, I mean, most people, when they first read it, I say I would think say like make the most English readers think Godot and God. Yeah. Beckett was very very adamant against that reading. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. But a lot of, of authors and filmmakers and playwrights have said, oh no, this is certainly not that. Only to be figured out. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Was there an answer yeah. to that sort of question? To who Godot is? Like, yeah. Isn't that literature no. the whole point of it? Uh, to answer questions? No, to not. That there might not be answers. There's a debate. Yeah. It, it's you seem like the kind of person that would say, oh, okay, but why is a raven like a rating desk? Um, yeah, flat notes from both. Do you know the uh, one of the other answers is um, Poe wrote on both? That's my favorite answer, Poe wrote on both. The premise for the raven, the play, came, was conceived because Poe panned a novel that Dickens wrote, which happened to have a raven in it. And the reason had a raven character is because he had a pet raven who ate paint chips and died, which was the initial inspiration for the play. For the, for the poem, poem. The poem, the raven. The playum. The poem. The Edgar Allan play. <laughs> Good. Someone, someone thought that was wacky enough to laugh at. All right. Look, Waiting for Godot is really great. One thing about Beckett, so I'll just tell you this because if you don't know about Beckett, you should know it. One thing about Beckett is that he's an incredibly lyrical writer. Do people know who James Joyce is? Mm? Anyone not? You're not James Joyce? You don't know who he is? Even though he's on our syllabus. 
Okay, I guess we have to read James Joyce. James Joyce is widely, perhaps correctly, probably correctly, considered the greatest English language novelist of the 20th century. Some people think the greatest novelist of the 20th century, but he's not. But um, who am I to say? Someone who can say... Well, if some people are me, Proust. Um, but there, he certainly has rivals, but he may not quite have rivals in English. Um, it may be hard to, to maintain the claim that there's anyone who's quite as equal in English in the 20th century. His most famous novel <coughs> is a novel called Ulysses. Ulysses, this may be familiar to you. Um, you wait, you're shaking your head because it is or isn't familiar? No, because my English teacher who was like, I, in my senior year, she was like the most brilliant person I've ever known in my entire life. And she's like, I couldn't get through Ulysses. I couldn't write a paper. I had like a mental breakdown. And I was like, that's rough. And like she had no real big problem with like Absalom Absalom, but she could not. I actually think Absalom Absalom is harder, but it's partly I think it's harder because you can get everything in Absalom Absalom if you really try, and if you put enough work into it. Whereas what Joyce said about Ulysses is that it would take the English professors <coughs> three hundred years to get it all, and he was fine with that. Um, so there's a lot in Ulysses that is intentionally obscure and that you couldn't get without um, a whole lot, well, without an internet, let's say, which Joyce didn't know was coming. Um, the internet helps a lot. Anyhow, what Ulysses is, it's 728 pages long, um, and it tells the story of three characters, basically three characters, although it has a cast of thousands, literally it has a cast of thousands, um, tells a story basically of three characters. Stephen Dedalus, who is also the hero of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, he comes back as one of the characters in Ulysses. Leopold Bloom, who is the main character in Ulysses, and who... Um, gives his name to something you may sometimes see called Bloomsday, and Molly Bloom, Leopold Bloom's wife. And um, Leopold Bloom, Stephen Dedalus, and Molly Bloom, um, in a single day, um, walking around Dublin, doing various things in Dublin, um, having various relatively normal, minor, um, everyday type of adventures in Dublin, replay the entirety of the Odyssey. So Ulysses is the Odyssey mapped into, that is the 10 years of, of Ulysses or Odysseus returning home from the Trojan War in the Odyssey, um, where his wife Penelope and his son Telemachus are waiting for him, although Telemachus goes out to look for him. That story is retold as the story of Leopold Bloom, who sells ads for a Dublin newspaper. Stephen Dedalus, who is a wannabe writer and a teacher at a secondary school in Dublin. And Molly Bloom, who is Leopold Bloom's wife. Penelope, very famously in the Odyssey, is um, extremely loyal to Odysseus or Ulysses to give him his Roman name even after he's been gone for 10 years she has faith that he'll return and she refuses to um, entertain the idea of any erotic alliance with anyone else. Molly Bloom spends the day that um, Leopold Bloom is out selling ads, having lunch, um, getting drunk and doing various other things, um, having sex with someone else. Um, so it's the same story, but um, same has to be taken as what Joyce means by same, not perhaps what we would mean by same. It's 
widely considered the greatest novel of the 20th century in English. Um, Virginia Woolf didn't like it um, because she thought it was coarse and she tried to rival it and, you know, did an incredibly great job in Mrs. Dalloway, which is her answer to Ulysses and which also takes place in a single day. Um, lots of other people have tried to rival Ulysses in lots of other ways. It's certainly the most influential novel of the 20th century, bar none, um, probably in any language, bar none. So Beckett was, um, Joyce was born in 1882, um, Irish Catholic. You'll see some of this when we do Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Ulysses was written between 1914 and 1922 when it was published. Um, but it takes place, the day that it takes place, a day that is now sometimes called Bloomsday, so pay attention next June, it takes place on June 16th, 1904. So if you've read The Sound and the Fury, you may know that The Sound and the Fury takes place over the course of about four different days, widely separated in time. Um, those are kind of famous days, but June 16th, 1904 is the most famous fictional day. I mean, it's a real day, but the most famous um, fictional day in fiction, June 16th, 1904. That's called Bloomsday. Um, and it takes place over the over 18 hours of that day from 8 a.m. till early the next morning. About 18 hours. We're not quite sure what time it ends. It ends with the very famous words, Molly, in her famous soliloquy. Um, her last words are, anyone know? Yes? Yes, yes, I will, yes. Yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. Um, so it ends with this striking and dazzling affirmation. Beckett was born in 1906, so born, um, he claimed born on Good Friday, which was Friday the 13th um, of 1906, so it was a very bad Good Friday. Um, he probably was lying, he was probably born a month later. Um, but at any rate, he was born just about two years after Ulysses. Um, Joyce was Catholic. Beckett was Protestant, but both were Irish, and Beckett revered Joyce and eventually um, went to help him with the novel that he wrote after Ulysses, The Notorious Finnegan's Wake, which some people think is a greater novel than Ulysses, which I used to think is a greater novel than Ulysses, which might be a greater novel than Ulysses, but which it's much harder to tell about. Um, Finnegan's Wake ends very famously not with the word yes, but with the word anyone know? The. Um, so the only great novel to end with the word the. Um, and if you've read Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, anyone read it? Um, so the, the main character of The Bell Jar is trying and failing to write her senior thesis in college on Finnegan's Wake. She makes the mistake of thinking that it's a novel. She can read it fast and write very quickly about it. Um, and boy, is she wrong. Um, it's one of the things that messes her up, not the main thing that messes her up, but one of the things that messes her up. Okay, I mention it because, for, because Beckett, um, who revered Joyce and was a kind of follower of Joyce's, um, went, and, um, went to France and worked and helped Joyce um, t by doing research and also taking dictation for Finnegan's Wake. Um, Joyce was nearly blind or completely blind much of the time. He had very great trouble with his eyes. He needed um, an extraordinarily intelligent person 
um, with of a literary flair to help him. Beckett was that person. Joyce also really wanted Beckett to marry his daughter, but Beckett didn't want to, and that led to um, some serious uh, trouble. Um, but one, the reason I mention it. Sorry. Did the daughter get a say in that? She was in love with him, but she was also um, in mentally in very bad bad shape. And Joyce was thinking that if Beckett married her, he might cure her, um, which was probably not true. But at any rate, Beckett refused. Um, so Beckett writes very very differently from Joyce, and partly you could say that he writes um, in Joyce's shadow, but in an attempt to get out of Joyce's shadow. So one little passage, I didn't know I was going to read any of this to you, but um, I did want you to know a little bit about Beckett. His greatest novel, I should say, is probably the novel called Watt, W-A-T-T, which is written in English, um, and which is unbelievably funny. Um, it's the kind of novel that, you know how you almost never laugh out loud when you're actually alone, even if you type it? Um, <laughs> It's like LOL is your substitute for actually laughing. Someone says something mildly funny to you. A while ago, I made a promise to myself never to do that unless I actually did Unless you actually lie. laughed. Did you, and did you... Um, I think it's happened once or twice. That you've actually laughed. Yeah. Um, it's like a huff. All right, so I guess what I should do is just um, read you a few passages from here just so you get a sense of Beckett, which will contextualize... Um, the change of pace that you now have. Um, and one thing I was hoping to find, and I'm just going to take, I think I know where it is on the page, um, but I could be wrong. Um, no, I'm not going to find it. Um, what a pity. Um, well, I'll tell you this little story. I'm trying to think if I should read you this passage about where he scratches his balls, but I don't think I will. Um, but that's kind of typical. Um, so when I was in high school, uh, do you guys do yearbook quotes in your high school? Okay, so um, two years ahead of me in high school was James Glick. Do people know who he is? He wrote the book called Chaos um, and recently wrote a book called The Information. Yeah, so you know who he is. Um, so he was two years ahead of me. He was famous for getting double 800s on his SATs. Everyone adored him. And his yearbook quote was from Malloy. And his yearbook quote was just so great that um, in 10th grade, I sat down and read all of Beckett. And Beckett was my first really major favorite writer um, after that. Um, so here was his yearbook quote. He actually screwed it up a little bit, but I'm going to give it um, to you correctly. Um, Malloy, the narrator of the first half of Malloy, um, describes um, being um, just hanging out outside, he's homeless, <coughs> hanging out outside in um, a country landscape on a hill and seeing two travelers out for an evening walk and just watching them as they walk. They run into each other because they're walking in opposite directions and they keep walking. And then he says, um, Yes, they did not pass each other by, but halted face to face, as in the country of an evening on a deserted road, two wayfaring strangers will, without there being anything extraordinary about it. 
but they knew each other perhaps. Now, in any case, they do. Now I think they will know each other, greet each other, even in the depths of the town. They turn towards the sea, which far in the east, beyond the fields, loomed high in the waning sky and exchanged a few words. Then each went on his way, each went on his way. A, back towards the town. C, on byways, he seemed hardly to know, or not at all, for he went with uncertain step <coughs> and often stopped to look about him, like someone trying to fix landmarks in his mind. For one day, perhaps he may have to retrace his steps. You never know. Then this part. The treacherous hills where fearfully he ventured were no doubt only known to him from afar, seen perhaps from his bedroom window or from the summit of a monument which, one black day having nothing in particular to do and turning to height for solace, he had paid his few coppers to climb slower and slower up the winding stones. So that's already very beautiful. It's a black day. He had nothing better to do, and he looks to height for solace. And then this is where uh, Jim Glick began his yearbook quote. From there, that is from that tower, or perhaps his bedroom window, from there he must have seen it all, the plain, the sea, and then these selfsame hills that some call mountains, indigo in places in the evening light, their serried ranges crowding to the skyline, cloven with hidden valleys that the eye divines from sudden shifts of color, and then from other signs for which there are no words nor even thoughts. But all are not divined even from that height, and often where there was only, excuse me, and often where only one escarpment is discerned and one crest, in reality there are two, two escarpments, two crests, riven by a valley. But now he knows these hills, that is to say he knows them better. And if ever again he sees them from afar, it will be, I think, with other eyes. And not only that, but the within, all that inner space one never sees, the brain and heart and other caverns where thought and feeling dance their Sabbath, all that too quite differently disposed. He looks old, and it is a sorry sight to see him solitary after so many years, so many days and nights so many comings and goings. Um, so just the sheer lyricism of that um, utterly captivated me when I was in 10th grade. So I read Malloy, and I guess what I should do is just to give you a sense of Beckett, which is all part of the context, um, I'll read you about um, the parrot, if I can find it, which really shouldn't be that hard. Um, otherwise, I'll have to recite it, but I won't get it right. Um, so he goes to he he um, takes up with a woman, and she takes him home with him, and they have really unpleasant and and incompetent sex with each other. Um, but he describes her parrot. Um, uh, kills oh, he kills her dog. That's how they meet. He runs, he runs over her dog on his bicycle. Um, actually, some, if someone can Google this, it might be faster. 
Um, Google the phrase, she had a parrot, very pretty, and then Beckett. And just... Um, so that's implicit permission to take out... Yes, that's, that's now explicit permission. Um, I can't believe I can't find this. I used to know this book so well. Um, and it's all really hilarious. What can I tell you? So do, do you, can you tell what page it's on? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is John Henry. Um, okay. Yeah. This. I guess this is this is the right paragraph. Um, she had a parrot. This is the woman named Luce or Louse. She had a parrot, very pretty, all the most approved colors. I understood him better than his mistress. I don't mean I understood him better than she understood him. <laughs> I mean I understood him better than I understood her. He exclaimed from time to time, fuck the son of a bitch, fuck the son of a bitch. He must have belonged to an American sailor before he belonged to Laos. Pets often change masters. He didn't say much else. No, I'm wrong. He also said, putain de merde. He must have belonged to a French sailor before he belonged to the American sailor. Putain de merde. Unless he had hit on it alone. It wouldn't surprise me. Laos tried to make him say, pretty Polly. I think it was too late. He listened. He said on one side, pondered, then said, fuck the son of a bitch. It was clear he was doing his best. Um, so that's the same speaker in the same novel. Thank you. Um, same speaker in the same novel as from there he must have seen it all, the hills, the plains, and then, the, and what is it, the, um, the sky, the plains, and then these hills, which some called mountains, their serried ranges crowding to the skyline, but all are not divined even from the great height, etc. and those hidden caverns where thought and feeling dance their <coughs> Sabbath. Um, it just all flows naturally from one to another. Um, the most famous passage in Malloy is probably the sucking stone passage. Does this ring a bell for anyone? Okay, so um, just because, you know what you could do is look up someone else, look up, um, no, never mind. I, I'm not going to get the phrase um, right enough. Um, so Malloy is very hungry, and what he, do, what he realizes is that if he sucks on um, just stones, which is apparently something that you're taught in the resistance. If you're really hungry or thirsty, get a pebble and suck on it. Beckett was in the resistance. He knew about all this. Um, that if he sucks on these stones, um, that will help him. So um, what he says is, um, actually, this goes on so long that I'm not going to do it. He spends about uh, seven pages or so describing his attempt to suck the 16 stones that he owns in order, um, so that he sucks all 16 in the same order each time before sucking stone number one again. But he only has four pockets to hold them in. And this, this is a very difficult problem. Um, and he spends a lot of pages describing um, what he tries to do, taking a stone from the right pocket of my greatcoat and putting it in my mouth, I replaced it in the right pocket of my greatcoat by a stone from the right pocket of my trousers, which I replaced by a stone from the left pocket of my trousers, which I replaced by a stone from the left pocket of my greatcoat, which I replaced by the stone which was in my mouth as soon as I finished sucking it. 
Thus, there were still four stones in each of my four pockets, but not quite the same stones. That it's that sort of thing. So, but he realizes that he can never do it, and he's all depressed about this. Um, if he had eight, po- <coughs> sorry, yeah. If he had eight pockets, it would be better. If he had sixteen pockets with some safety pins, that would still be better. Um, but he doesn't know what to do, and he says, and while I gazed thus at my stones, revolving interminable martingales, all equally defective, and crushing handfuls of sand so that the sand ran through my fingers and fell back on the strand. Yes, while thus I lulled my mind and part of my body, one day suddenly it dawned on the former, that is his mind, dimly, that I might perhaps achieve my purpose without increasing the number of my pockets or reducing the number of my stones, but simply by sacrificing the principle of trim, the meaning of this illumination, which suddenly began to sing within me like a verse of Isaiah or of Jeremiah, I did not penetrate at once. And notably the word trim, which I had never met with in this sense, long remained obscure. So he has an idea, what if I put 15 stones, all 16 stones in one pocket and then sucked one, put it in the next pocket and so on, that would solve the problem. But the problem is he still couldn't get the stones in order, and he goes on about that for a few pages. Um, Each cycle taken separately would be fine, but in the end, um, it just wouldn't work. Um, And um, finally, this really is seven pages later, um, he says, uh, so it was... Something more than a principle I abandoned when I abandoned the equal distribution. It was a bodily need. But to suck the stones in the way I have described, not haphazard, but with method, was also, I think, a bodily need. Here, then, were two incompatible bodily needs at loggerheads. Such things happen. But deep down, I didn't give a tinker's curse about being off my balance dragged to the right hand and the left, backwards and forwards, and deep down it was all the same to me, whether I sucked a different stone each time or always the same stone until the end of time. Um, Why didn't he find stones that looks different? Well, because then he wouldn't have been a Beckett character, although Watt might have done that. Okay, so this is partial context for um, the variety of Beckett's characters. Um, what, or, or of Beckett's voices in a single character. Beckett's Beckett's characters really are, in a lot of ways, based on Chaplin or Keaton. That is, they are bums who lead lives of just ludicrous material um, yuckiness and material silliness, Um, but they are also um, very, very sad clowns. Beckett was obsessed with the great 20th century clown Emmett Kelly, whose signature... um, um, whose signature in the theater at the end of the circus was that he would be, he would come on stage, the circus was all over, he would come on stage alone with um, a dustpan and a brush, and there would be a spotlight on the stage, but not on him, and he would try to sweep up the spotlight, and he couldn't, and it was just all impossible. So part two of Malloy is a detective figure named Moran is sent to go find Malloy for reasons that we don't know. Um, And Moran fails very badly in his mission and in fact seems to be turning into Malloy because he too becomes a homeless bum who's lost everything that belongs to him. No one knows who he is. He's trying to get back to his own home and failing and he's eating garbage and things are going very badly. So if you go to page 166, 
he's been thinking about flies. And now he says, but to return to the flies, I like to think of those that hatch out at the beginning of winter within doors and die shortly after. You see them crawling and fluttering in the warm corners, puny, sluggish, torpid, mute. That is, you see an odd one now and then. They must die very young without having been able to lay. You sweep them away. You push them into the dustpan with a brush without knowing. That is a strange race of flies. But I was succumbing to other affections. That is not the word intestinal for the most part. So his um, stomach is bothering him. Um, I would have described them once, not now. I am sorry. It would have been worth reading. I shall merely say that no one else would have surmounted them without help. But I bent double my free hand, pressed to my belly. I advanced. And every now and then, I let a roar of triumph and distress. Certain mosses I consumed must have disagreed with me. If I once made up my mind not to keep the hangman waiting, the bloody flux itself would not stop me. I would get there on all floors, shitting out my entrails and chanting maledictions. Didn't I tell you it's my brethren that have done for me? But I shall not dwell upon this journey home, its furies and treacheries. And I shall pass over in silence the fiends in human shape and the phantoms of the dead that tried to prevent me from getting home in obedience to Udi's command. Udi is his boss. But one or two words, nevertheless, for my own edification and to prepare my soul to make an end. To begin with, my rare thoughts. So there he is, um, basically um, completely derelict in hideous pain from eating moss, shitting out his entrails, bent double, trying to get home. And nevertheless, certain thoughts occur to him. And this is typical of Beckett. And I'm partly bringing this in in order to show you what those thoughts are. Certain questions of a theological nature preoccupied me strangely, as for example. What value is to be attached to the theory that Eve sprang not from Adam's rib, but from a tumor in the fat of his leg? That is his ass. Good theological question. Two, did the serpent crawl or, as Comistor affirms, walk upright? Three, did Mary conceive through the ear, as Augustine and Abadard assert? Four, how much longer are we to hang about waiting for the Antichrist? Five, does it really matter which hand is employed to absturge the podex? Um, if you were to look those words up, you could figure out what they meant, or maybe you can now. Anyone know? Wipe your ass. Does it really matter? Six. Yeah. Yeah. Six, what is one to think of the Irish oath sworn by the natives with the right hand on the relics of the saints and the left on the virile member? Seven, does nature observe the Sabbath? Eight, is it true that the devils do not feel the pains of hell? Nine, the algebraic theology of Craig. What is one to think of this? Ten, is it true that the infant Saint Roche refused suck on Wednesdays and Fridays? Eleven, what is one to think of the excommunication of vermin in the 16th century? 12. Is one to approve of the Italian cobbler Lovett, who having cut off his testicles, crucified himself? Do you approve or not? I don't know. 13. What was God doing with himself before the creation? So where does he get that question? From Yay! From Augustine, whom Beckett read in Latin <coughs> incessantly. Um, 14, might not the beatific vision become a source of boredom in the long run? 
So if you know the Talking Heads song, Heaven, that's the same um, idea. 15, is it true that Judas's torments are suspended on Saturdays? And 16, what if the Mass for the Dead were read over the living? So the point is, questions of an abstruse theological nature um, can occur, can preoccupy you in any state of life. <coughs> At least that's what Beckett, um, who, as I say, was in the resistance and eventually after the war in the rebuilding of the French town of Saint-Lô, which was bombed to smithereens by the Allies, um, volunteered at the hospital there, and his job there was rat catcher to prevent the rats from scurrying around the rooms. Um, Beckett knew what he was talking about. This is, this is funny and dark and deep and also comes out of personal knowledge. So um, this is one place that Augustine will um, show himself and a pretty hilarious, pretty grim, pretty deep place. Um, so that was the very quick change of place, pace. Now we can start class. Um, what we were talking about yesterday, and this is um, where we're gonna, what, we're, what you should do for um, Monday is read Macbeth. We'll talk about Macbeth on Monday. Um, but what we were talking about yesterday and talking about math induction um, and in talking about what Poincaré had to say about math induction was to distinguish between a statement that um, is always true by inspection. That is something like if A equals B, B equals A, no matter what values you put in for A and B. If A is B, B is A. That's a deductive or an analytical statement. They're not quite the same thing, but for our purposes, they can be. That's a deductive or analytical statement. And the, the thing about a statement like that is that you, using the words or the letters or the signs A and B, you are meaning to cover an infinite number of cases. So that if one is one, then one is one. Um, if three is three, then three is three. Um, or we could um, put this um, slightly, um, a, a slightly longer tautology. If A equals B plus 1, then B equals A minus 1. Um, by defining those signs right, that becomes a tautology. If A equals B plus 1, then B equals A minus 1. One. Um, you can turn that into something like if A is an odd number, then A plus 1 is an even number. And when you say things like that in math, what you are actually doing is compressing an infinite number of cases into a single statement. That's something that Hilbert was talking about. Um, it doesn't seem like it, and Hilbert says, don't, don't freak out about this. Really, it's just a formula, and you don't have to bring infinity into this, and you don't have to go, get all infinite about that. But for Poincaré, you are getting all infinite about that. That if you say that every successor to an odd number is even, you are making a claim that you know what numbers look like way out there beyond Graham's number.
that you know what you know the characteristics of numbers that there's no notation that could possibly um, name that number. You're still saying, no, I know this. There are an infinite number of even numbers, and I know for a fact that every single one of those even numbers is followed by an odd number. And every single one of those odd numbers will then be followed again by an even number. So every time we have a mathematical formula of any sort, um, what we are doing is saying that here in front of us, in just a few words, something which is true for an infinity of things is presented to us. <coughs> and the question then is, have we really mastered infinity that easily? Or is this not really a mastership of infinity, which is what I think we'd be tempted to say, it's not like, oh, now we have, we have a handle on the infinite. I think we'd rather be tempted to say, no, all we're saying is um, something is itself. And you can't say, whoa, dude, I can talk about infinity because I can say everything is itself. That is so cool. Now I've talked about everything <coughs> and said that it's all itself, deep. Um, so I think most of us won't think that that's a handle on infinity, that saying that all things are what they are um, somehow becomes an infinite truth, it seems to be like reducing the library of Babel to a single alphabet or a single letter. Um, it's not the library of Babel. It all turns out to be just a way of describing what a letter is or what an alphabet is. Um, and to say, oh yes, the library of Babel, is just to build a cotton candy structure on a single... Um, grain of sugar. And what all that you really have is that single grain of sugar. If A equals B, B equals A. That's all you have. Um, and to say that somehow that's an infinite truth is to utterly debase the idea of infinity. So Poincaré thinks that. He doesn't think that um, somehow, and neither does Hilbert, that somehow you're talking about infinity every time you use an algebraic formula. Um, you know, everyone knows that 2 equals 2, and that's obviously not an infinite truth. But to say that if A equals B, B equals A, you can plug in anything for A. Um, and if A equals B, then B will equal A. And somehow you've talked about the infinite universe. That's like saying, to use a famous example in logic, that... Um, Saying that there are, I'm, I'm not going to give you the actual example, but it comes down to something like this. Um, saying that there are 24 volumes in Walter Scott's Waverly novels and saying that there are 24 counties in, um, in the state of Utah is saying the same thing. Um, and there are logical cases where it is saying the same thing, and yet it doesn't feel like you've said anything there. It just feels like this is totally empty and shows the emptiness <coughs> of logic. So here we're at a case where the infinite and the empty seem to be very close to each other. But Poincaré wants to defend the dignity of mathematics and wants to say, no, something else is going on. And the other thing that's going on is what we get not from deduction, but from induction. 
So again, the way induction works, I, I was going to do it again for you, but I won't. But the way induction works is you take a formula. And, do you want to say something? Was your hand up? No, join now. Okay, you take a formula. And you prove that if that formula is true for a certain number that you plug into it, it is also true for that number plus 1. That's the simplest way of doing math induction. So you take the formula that um, n times n plus 1 over 2 equals the sum of numbers from 1 to n. And then you show if that's true, if n times n plus 1 over 2 equals 1 plus 2 plus 3 all the way up to n, then it's also true for n plus 1. That is, if that formula works, then if you plug in n plus 1 for where you had n, you will get the same. That will also be true. Do, do people want me to show you this on the board? Is it easier or harder if I show it to you? Yeah. All right. Okay, let me see if I can do it. Okay, so we say, let's Let's say that this sum, that's sigma for sum. Um, if you ever see a sigma like that, that means it's a sum of, do people know this is sum, sum of discrete numbers? So that's sigma for sum, that um, the sum from 1 to n is given by the formula n times n plus 1 over 2. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but let's see what happens if that's true. Remember we saw what would happen if it were true that there were a finite number of primes. There aren't a finite number of primes, but we wanted to see what would happen if that were true. So let's say if this formula is true, what can we conclude from it? So what we can say is if this formula is true, we can write it like this also, n squared plus n over 2 is the sum from 1 to n. Everyone sees that? We just multiplied n times n plus 1. We get n squared plus n over 2 is the sum of numbers from 1 to n. Now, if that's true, <coughs> then the sum of numbers from 1 to n plus 1 will be, how should I write it in this formula? So n plus 1 times n plus 1 plus 1 over, does everyone see why we did it this way? The easy way to see it is to say, let's take another n, a number m and set m equal to n plus 1, okay? So now we can say that, this, that if that formula is true, then n plus 1 and n plus 1 plus 1 would be m times m plus 1. It's got the same structure. Okay? So if this formula is always true, it'll be true not only of n times n plus 1 over 2, but of m times m plus 1 over 2. And instead of writing m times m plus 1 over 2, we say m is just one more than n, m therefore is n plus 1. Instead of writing m, we write n plus 1. 
instead of writing m here, we write m plus 1, and then we add plus 1. Okay, so everyone sees that? Does anyone not see it? Okay, so now we do this multiplication, and we get n squared, right? Um, let's turn this n plus 1 plus 1 into just n plus 2 to make things easier. We get n times n is n squared plus 2n plus n plus 2n plus n plus, plus 2 quantity over, over 2. So if it's true, then that number can be expanded <coughs> into this number. n squared plus 2n plus n plus 2, or n squared plus 3n plus 2, right? So this is all very simple arithmetic, so you're still there. So now let's add 1 to this number, because what we're doing is we're saying, what happens if we add 1 to, I'm sorry, what, what we're asking is, what happens now if we are adding, um, yeah, sorry, we're adding n plus 1. It's the sum to n, but now we're going to add n plus 1. So it's the sum from 1 to n, but now we go one higher, so we're adding n plus 1. So we add n plus 1 to this number, and to this number, plus n plus 1, so that we get the sum from 1 to n plus 1 now. And let's see if that is what happens if we do that. So instead of saying n squared plus n over 2 plus n plus 1, we'll multiply this by 2 over 2, which gives us 2n plus 2 over 2. Sorry, that's hard to read. Which gives us 2n plus 2, if we multiply it by 2 over 2, right? Mm -hmm. So now we just put it over a single denominator, and we have n squared plus n plus 2n plus 2, which is n squared plus 3n plus 2, and now we find that if we add 1 to this, if we add n plus 1 to this number, we get this result, which is the same of, as plugging in n plus 1 into the formula, you get the same result. So we know now, does everyone see that? Yep. So we know now that if it's true for n, it will be true for n plus 1. We can now do the same thing again. If it's true for n plus 1, it's true for n plus 2. If it's true for, yeah, which is n plus 1. Um, if it's true for n plus 2, it's true for n plus 3, etc. So now, what we want to do is prove that it's true for some n. If it is true for some n, it'll be true for every integer greater than that n. So let's start with 2. So the sum of numbers from 1 to 2 is 3. <coughs> 1 plus 2 equals 3. 
the formula would have 2 times 3 over 2 equals? Equals 3. So it's true for 2. Is it true for 1? Well, one time, the, the sum of numbers from 1 to 1 is? 1 times 1 plus 1 is? Over 2 is? So it's true for 1. If it's true for 1, we've just proved that it'll be true for 2. If it's true for 2, we've just proved that it'll be true for 3, etc. Now, the crucial thing about math induction, although Poincaré doesn't say this, Wittgenstein does, the crucial thing about math induction is unlike deductive proofs, math induction doesn't give you a single statement as its answer. Math induction works because we know two true things at the end of it, not one. We know the two true things that we know are if it's true for n, it's also true for n plus 1. And it's true for 1, let's say. Deduct, um, induction doesn't have to start with the number 1, but in simple cases it will. So if it's true for n, it's true for n plus 1 is one statement that we know. And we also know a second statement, it's true for 1. But there is no way, logically, to combine those two statements into a single statement. That is logic or deduction or analytical thinking will not take those two statements and show how they together produce a single final statement. Thought has to do that. You have to be able to think the idea, and this really is an idea, and not a logical conclusion. You have to think the idea and so on, or etc., or it'll keep going the same way. That's not a logical result, that statement, that idea, that, and it keeps going like this. What that is, is an actual human thought. That's something that humans can think, but that is not a mere result of the symbolism. So if something's a mere result of the symbolism, then what you get is a symbolic statement at the end of things, which is just a rearrangement. This is what Hilbert says. It's just a rearrangement of the symbols that you start with. So you have a bunch of symbols, let's just say the number one drawn on the page, meaning the number one, and then if you have two of them, they're two, and if you have three, they're three, and so on. You have a bunch of symbols, and a purely formal, logical <coughs> mathematics would say all you have to do is follow certain very well-established rules for manipulating symbols, and you will get all conclusions that follow from those manipulations. Does that make sense to people? That's what Hilbert was saying. Um, that's an important idea because that's what computers do. Yeah. Yeah, so the dream of reducing math to logic, which was what Frege and um, Russell and Whitehead were trying to do. 
was the idea that you didn't have to interpret the meaning of mathematical symbols. <coughs> what you could do is have some rules for how symbols interacted with each other. The way you do, let's say, in chess, where a pawn can move in a certain way under certain conditions. A knight can move in a certain way under certain conditions. A rook can move in a certain way under certain conditions. Now, some people will say, you know, Nabokov, for example, will say, chess, look, it's the king, but the king is powerless and castrated, and the almighty queen has all the power, and one queen <coughs> is trying to protect her poor, fragile king from the other queen, and so on. Um, but no one who's really playing chess, not even in Harry Potter, is thinking in those terms. Um, chess is not really a game where the names of the pieces become part of the narrative when you're thinking about chess. When computers learn to play chess, one thing you don't program into them is the idea that the bishop is kind of like a religious figure um, that, like so many religious figures in the history of religion, always gets goes diagonally, never is straightforward about the goals that it wants. And that pawns are really peons. They're the, they're the um, unimportant peasants within the world of the chess game, and so on. Um, no one thinks in those terms, and you would never try to get that representation into a computer. All a computer needs to know is that rooks are worth about five, um, depending on the position. Bishops and knights are worth about three each. Um, they're given numerical values. Pawns are given values of one. King is given a value of 500, let's say, some arbitrarily large value. And a queen is given a value of nine. And um, so when you program a computer, you're telling it to um, do calculations that will maximize the value that, it, that will result um, based on um, calculating what another entity will do, trying to maximize the value um, that that entity can get out of it um, when you're trading back and forth in um, calculating what, what output to produce to maximize value. Okay, does that make sense to people? That's how you would write, that's the basic idea for how you're writing a program. The computers don't know from winning or losing. They don't have the idea of winning or losing. They don't have the idea of kings and queens and knights um, on horses that can jump over pawns and so on. None of that is part of their thinking. Yet. For, sorry? Yes. Yet. So what chess is even for us, or what cards are even for us, you know, if you say, why is an ace worth more than a king? Because that's the rule. That's the only reason that an ace is worth more than a king. Um, what chess is for us, what cards are for us, are symbolic pieces, symbolic counters, that interact with each other according to a set of well-established rules. Um, that's all these things mean. Um, people playing bridge don't say, oh no, hearts, and yet my heart was broken yesterday, um, so how can I play hearts? It's just too depressing. Um, hearts in bridge um, don't just have anything to do except historically with hearts. They have to do with how they interact with other suits and with other um, cards in the same 
suit. So what those games are are rules for symbolic interaction. What Russell and Whitehead and Frege and others wanted to do was derive math out of the rules of symbolic interaction. And they wanted those rules to be so simple and straightforward that everyone would think they were true if they interpreted them. So you have a rule, an uninterpreted rule, that A equals A, that if you put down a sign, and let's say there are 26 possible signs, and if you put down one of those 26 possible signs, and put down another one of, let's say, eight possible signs between them, in this case the equal sign, then you are entitled to put the first sign down again on the other side of that sign that you put between them. So if you're using this counter, which we call equals, but which they just call a counter of two little parallel line segments, and you take one of the 26 signs from A to Z, you're entitled to put it on one side of those two little parallel lines and also on the other side of those two little parallel lines, and that's, that is um, a sentence which you are entitled to write the, the, um, another sign next to, namely this sign, which we can interpret as true, but we don't have to. We're just entitled to put that sign next to it. If instead you use a different sign, so you say you use this of the 26 signs and this of the possible eight signs um, that could go between the 26 signs and this, then you're entitled to put this sign next to it or this, either truth <coughs> inverted or falsity, as we interpret it, but there's no need to do so. But what you're not entitled to put next to it is that. So it's rules for how signs can be put next to each other, how symbols can be put next to each other, um, and what putting those sing, um, symbols next to each other will yield. And what they'll yield are still other symbols, namely either T's or F's. Now, we humans can take those T's and F's as being truth and falsity, but they're all symbols. That was the dream. So the idea was that math would be simply symbol manipulation according to extremely straightforward rules that could nevertheless be iterated as often <coughs> as was necessary to get very, very long strings of um, answers. And that therefore a computer could, you could build a machine that could prove all true propositions, which is to say all propositions that you were entitled to put this sign next to. <coughs> we would call them true. <coughs> what a computer would just say is, yeah, that's a legitimate output when these when this set of symbols is put together. That output is legitimate or that output is not legitimate. So does that make sense to people that it's just um, like a monkey um, moving symbols around without knowing what they mean? That is, some people think that when a monkey says or, or um, 
Um, Alex the parrot used to say, I love you, give me a peanut, that's great. That what Alex is thinking is, I really love her, and because I love her, I really hope she'll give me a peanut, because that would be really great. But what other people think, Alex, is basically, do you know that B. Cleban cartoon, what we say to dogs, what they hear, and what we say to cats, what they hear? Did people know this? It's great. I've, I've seen that. Yeah, so it's what we say to dogs. It's, Ginger, I can't believe you just um, ripped up and, and um, ate my newspaper again. Ginger, you are a very bad dog. And what the dog hears is blah, 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 Ginger, blah, 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 Ginger, blah, 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 Ginger. And then what we say to cats is, um, um, I don't know, Felix, you're just a terrible cat the way you brought in another dead animal. Felix, I'm really disappointed, disappointed in you, but Felix, here's some kibble for you, Felix. And what Felix hears is blah, 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 because cats are so stupid. Um, and the cats don't even recognize their own names. So the question is, do animals, when you train an animal to manipulate symbols, does it know the meaning of the symbols it manipulates or not? This is a hotly debated question. Um, but computers would not know the meaning and wouldn't have to know the meaning of the symbols they're manipulating. <coughs> All they would have to do is follow the rules. And we could then look at the outputs that came from that rule following. And we would say, OK, we can interpret that in a certain way, which is if it's true that a line is the shortest distance between two points, which is something that you could represent symbolically, the computer could take those symbols, apply very simple rules that we taught it to apply to those symbols, and produce some outputs. And then we could reinterpret those outputs as, have, as being of mathematical interest. So if people know what Turing machines are, and Turing machines are things that we will have occasion to talk about later, um, anyone not know? Okay, go ahead. Um, another thing that Turing talked about was Turing tests. And this seems to me like a yeah. whole debate as to whether a machine passes a Turing test, whether it should be considered to understand the things that it's saying. Right. And this is something, if, if, how many people have read Neuromancer at some point? Uh, this is an issue in Neuromancer, which is just, and also in Stanislaw Lem's story, um, experiment. Um, so it's something we'll talk about. But okay, so Alan Turing was the great... Um, one of the, basically one of the two founders of computer science in the 20th century. Um, he was the code, the principal code breaker of the German Enigma machine in World War II. Breaking Enigma, people say, was second in importance only to the atomic bomb as um, leading to the outcome of the war. And in fact, the atomic bomb didn't lead to any outcome in the war in Europe. Um, so breaking Enigma was an extraordinarily important feat. Enigma was the German code, and Turing, who was a British cryptographer, and a team of hundreds at, in England at Bletchley Park um, broke that code. And because they broke the code, they could read all, of, all German transmissions. Um, in particular to submarines, but also to planes and ships and so on. So when America was supplying Britain with troops and food and supplies during the war, um, German submarines would, would attempt to torpedo 
um, American convoys, and they were extremely successful until Enigma was broken, and then the Allies knew where the submarines were, and the boats could avoid them, and the planes could bomb them. So breaking Enigma was of incredible importance. They also knew when the Germans were going to... Um, were going to bomb cities, and they knew all sorts of things. They were able to um, figure out what was going on among the Nazis. So Turing worked really hard to break Enigma, to break that code. He was really important um, to the history of the 20th century for that reason. Um, Turing also, he was a student of Wittgenstein's. Wittgenstein, I already quoted for you as the, as the person who says, the thing about induction is you don't get one answer. Turing and he had a lot of, and Wittgenstein had a lot of really interesting debates that have been preserved in um, people's notes of the classes that Turing took with Wittgenstein. Turing is spelled T-U-R-I-N-G. It was just his 100th birthday, actually. And Google's... Um, Easter egg or whatever for his 100th birthday was a Turing machine. Um, you can find it, a usable Turing machine on um, the net. Um, so what, a t what Turing showed was that you could describe what a digital computer does no matter how complex it is. That is a computer that uses binary instructions you could show what it does no matter how complex it is with an extremely simple mental apparatus. And that if you could have a machine, and you can, you can build it, I think Harry Merson sometimes does, um, to show his students. You can build it out of toilet paper rolls um, and toilet paper and a pencil and an eraser. Um, you can build an extremely simple machine with extremely simple rules that can do anything that a supercomputer can do. It would just take a whole lot longer. But what Turing wanted to say was, here are all the rules you need for a computer. You need the idea that you can advance or, um, or retreat a strip of paper infinitely long if need be, or an arbitrarily long strip of paper. You need the idea that you can make or erase a mark on that strip of paper. And you need the idea that that strip of paper can be in one or another of two states. Now, what's a state? That might be the hardest um, question for a novice. A state is when um, you want to get a soda at a soda machine, and the soda costs 50 cents dream on, but once they did. Um, the soda is in a state where you have to put in two quarters. I mean, the machine is in a state where you have to put in two quarters um, when you get to it in order to get the soda. That is, it, in particular, it's in a state where if you put one quarter in, you won't get a soda out. However, putting one quarter into the machine <coughs> changes its state because what state is it now in? It's a state where if you put one quarter in, you will get a soda out. So putting a quarter into the machine doesn't give you a soda, but it changes the state of the machine. It changes the state of the machine so that putting a quarter in the machine gives you a soda, but that also changes the state of the machine. It changes it back so that putting a quarter in the machine won't give you a soda, 
but will change the state of the machine so that putting a quarter in the machine will give you a soda. So that's all a state is, is what happens um, if you do something when it's in one state is not what will happen if you do it when it's in another state. Yeah? Is this where you wanted me to bring up a bunch of rocks? Sure. Go, do it. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, though. It's like... Okay, well, we can send it to people. Yeah, okay. All right, so... Um, the idea, again, is um, you can conceptualize everything that a computer can do by asking, can a Turing machine do it? And how would a Turing machine do it? If a Turing machine can't do it, no computer can do it. And Turing was the one who came up with this very basic idea. Now, all a Turing machine, you could say, does is to write and to erase. All a Turing machine does is it follows extremely simple directions to manipulate symbols. And the, it's given those directions as symbols, and it also manipulates symbols, perhaps the symbols it's given, perhaps other symbols, but it's given extremely simple directions to manipulate symbols. Um, this is, in fact, a really interesting thing. How it does it is really interesting, but we don't have to talk about that now. Um, so what you could do, and this was the dream that people had in the beginning and in the first quarter or so of the 20th century, um, was that you could turn math into a bunch of symbolic statements that from the set from A to Z, and from the set containing equals, what we call the equal sign, the greater than sign, the less than sign, and so on, um, we could begin with certain things that we called T, like A equals A, and we could ask a computer to um, check out all combinations of those symbols and all combinations that could be reached simply by manipulating those symbols according to very simple pre-given rules would also yield to <coughs> That's what symbolic logic would be. Now what Poincaré is pointing out, he's not yet thinking about the fact that Turing machines um, run into impossible problems, um, which is something we may or may not get to. But what Poincaré is pointing out is that that's not what we mean by mathematical proof. And in particular, that a Turing machine can't do a proof by induction. Why? Because all a Turing machine can give you is any single formula. That is, you could say to a Turing machine, okay, if n, if it's T, and we're not going to say true, although we'll interpret it as true. We'll just say it's T, whatever that means. If it's T, that n times n plus 1 over 2 equals the sigma from 1 to n, is it also T that n plus 1 times n plus 2 over 2 equals the sigma from, n, from 1 to n plus 1? And the Turing machine could then manipulate those symbols, as we've just done, and, said, and say yes. So a Turing machine could do that, could tell you that if it's true for n, it's true for n plus 1. 
A Turing machine could also tell you that if it's true for n plus 1, it's true for n plus 2. But what a Turing machine could never tell you is, and therefore, it's true forever. Yeah? This is assuming that we don't program the idea of induction as an axiom into the machine. Yeah. But induction is like the fifth postulate. It's an axiom where we actually are claiming to know what will happen <coughs> in an inf infinite number of cases. We're not simply saying one symbol is entitled to be put next to a second symbol, which is entitled to be put next to a third symbol, because those were our original rules. What we're saying is, plus it's OK to do this an infinite number of times. And even if you don't do it an infinite number of times, it's OK for us humans to say, look, the computer's done it several times, so it can go on infinitely. We actually have to have insight to see the truth of an inductive proof. We can't do it as something which is purely symbolic. It requires actual thought rather than symbol manipulation. That's Poincaré's point. Yeah? I guess I would say, if, like, if looking at this simple example of induction on the board, um, you could write a computer program that, um, that does the symbolic manipulation necessary to show that if you, if you, that it's true for, the, for subbing in n plus 1 for n, and it's true for <coughs> 1, and then have that computer program output the induct that this has been proven true by induction. Yeah, but you still have to say that induction is not itself the name of, it may be, it's not itself the name of a symbolic manipulation. That is, you can say that if something is proven true by the Pythagorean theorem, all that really is is the Pythagorean theorem is the name of a symbolic manipulation. But induction isn't. Induction requires understanding rather than simply seeing that you get a bunch of symbols that work. And you can't define induction symbolically. Induction requires insight. Abby? Are there inductive proofs that work through induction that you can't understand logically? I can't say that. Um, but I can imagine that that's so. In fact, it's almost certainly so. Yeah, it is so because, uh, because undecidable statements are, some people will say undecidable statements are true by induction. That is, if you prove they're undecidable, you've also proved that you can't find any counterexamples. And if you can't find any counterexamples, then that seems to make them true. Um, a lot of people think that. Not everyone thinks that. But that seems to make them true, but only true by induction. But, you don't, you didn't need, but Poincaré didn't need that to see that induction was something genuinely synthetic, genuinely thoughtful, and not something mechanical, not something that was, <coughs> was a very simple mechanical manipulation of symbols. Um, the reason to think about this, again, just, to, just take this as a picture and then take this as a thought for Monday. An inductive proof is like imagining an infinite number, really an infinite number of dominoes going on way beyond anything you could see. And an inductive proof is I knock down the first domino, and it knocks down the second domino, and it knocks down the third domino, and I can see the dominoes falling as far as I can see, and that's really cool. But the inductive proof means that I'm absolutely confident that those dominoes will fall infinitely. 
And that kind of confidence is not something that, that's simply straightforward or obvious. It may be true, but it's also exciting. <coughs> which, yeah. Now, the other thing to think then is that what we're facing here is the local and the universal. I can see that this is true for one and two, and therefore for three, and therefore for four, and I can even test. And I can look at the here and now, but I can say this will go on forever. What Augustine is asking about time, and this is something that Macbeth will also ask and say about time, is how can time which is not in the present exist? What's past does not exist. Time is only the instant. It's only the now. The future doesn't yet exist. It's only the instant. It's only the now. And yet somehow I'm able to think of time as having duration when right now there's only this one hundred billionth of a trillionth of an infinitesimal moment of time that is this actual moment. How can I think about fast, past and future? <coughs> when they don't exist. All that exists is the now, and yet I somehow think about time as having infinite extension in both directions. So he's asking a question about thought as much as he's asking a question about time. He's asking a question about experience. So reread if you, I'm going to pretend you've read it, reread book 11 and read Macbeth. But think about how you would answer the really hard questions Augustine asks, just about how we have a sense of duration of some time being longer than other time. OK, have a good weekend. And I'll see you in a little time. <laughs>